Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Ostrelin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So today my guest is Justin B. Long, and he is author of The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy, A Journey of Self-Discovery. So today, Justin and I talk about his journey through his own trauma, childhood trauma, and how that set him up for alcoholism to escape that. And also we're going to talk about the traps of getting stuck in that idea of toxic masculinity, where as men, we can't share our feelings, we can't be vulnerable, we should just be stoic at all times, and how that keeps us stuck from being able to heal from our past wounds. Great conversation with Justin. He is just an open book, shares his story, talks about it, and shares his hope and healing for everyone else out there who is struggling with some of the same issues. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Justin Long, and he is going to talk about his book, The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy. I love the title, and I'm excited to talk about it, and I'm excited to um, hear your story. So, Justin, let's just jump in and uh, introduce yourself. All right. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Dwayne. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, as you said, my name is Justin B. Long, not to be confused with the actor Justin Long. But, uh, ah, there I you am- go. I am a little older and not near as 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 wealthy as he is. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you go. I'm okay, working on right. it. I'm working on it. You're working on it. All right. Well, let's just jump in. Let's start to hear a little bit of your story of recovery, and we're going to talk about how you got to your book, too. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So tell me about you. How did this all start? Oh, uh, well... I don't really know where it started, to be honest with you, because it's one of those stories that starts in a lot of different places. But 
I became aware of what was happening in my life in my mid-30s when I was trying to recover from alcoholism. But since then, you know, that journey has taken me back to the beginning of time and understanding what it was that drove me to alcoholism to begin with. And a lot of that was events in my childhood. And I grew up with two very emotionally dysfunctional parents. And my dad was right. a, a workaholic and a rageaholic. And my mom was deep off into extreme religiosity, hoping the, that God was going to solve her emotional challenges. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess, for a kid, because my parents didn't have any emotional tools to support me or, or to help me grow up in a, in a healthy way. So I grew up with, you know, my dad, you know, just him working wasn't enough. I had to work all the time, too, I think, for him to feel good about what he was doing. But, you know, right. he would have this long list of chores for me to do every day when I got home from school. And then when he got home from work, we would go inspect all those chores and I would get a spanking for all the shortcomings in them. So I, I had these these impossible expectations that I could never meet with guaranteed punishment at the end of the day every day. And that kind of stuff taught right. me that I'm going to be a failure no matter what I do. You know, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to get punished and that there's no point in me even trying. But I still tried because I needed that that impossible carrot, right? That, that pat on the back that I finally did good. And I'm going to get through today without a spanking. Right. And and, and you said, you said spanking, but in in reading your book, I think that's a little bit of an understatement. If, you know, in some of your stories you write, a spanking doesn't really sound uh, like the right level. Sometimes, sometimes it was a spanking. Sometimes it was a lot worse than that. I think it it would depend on how angry my dad was at any given day. But you know, sometimes it was five or six swats. Sometimes it was twenty or thirty. The time the the trash can got dumped in the backyard, it was a hundred and four. So, you know, it it varied in intensity, but it was never a, a a mild swat on the butt. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So, how do you feel this led to your drinking all of this trauma? I think that, you know, between that and, and my mom, who would you know, put me in the trash dumpster to wait until my dad got home to spank me for whatever I'd done to her, you know, that I just had these beliefs about myself that were very negative. And I, I believed that I was worthless, that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't, I couldn't never do anything right. And so by the time I was a teenager, you know, I was looking for any way out of my skin because I was so uncomfortable with myself. I didn't like who I was. I certainly wasn't comfortable in my home environment. I didn't trust my parents. And I I was always looking for a way to escape. And as a kid, the only thing that I had to get me out of that was books. And so I like to say that I read books alcoholically, sort of tongue in cheek. But what it was, was a way to get me out of reality. And and as I got older, I kept looking for other ways to achieve that. And so when I got to high school, I discovered alcohol. And alcohol made me feel good about myself. It made me feel plugged in and accepted and okay for the first time ever in my life. And that was a wonderful feeling. I wanted that as much as possible. And so alcohol became my tool for me to feel good about myself. And I didn't understand that it wasn't solving my problems, that it was just a Band-Aid because it worked for a long time. You know, up into my my mid-20s, it did the job for me. But you know, like all external things like that, it had diminishing returns over time. And so it it just, it worked less and less and less until it stopped working altogether. And when did you, for you, I guess, when did you decide that this isn't working anymore? I need some help. I need to figure this out. I need to do something different. 
I think by the time I was 26, 27, I knew that there was something seriously wrong. Always felt like there was something wrong with me, so that wasn't new. But I was really starting to think that I had, you know, I, I needed to check myself into an insane asylum or something because I, I didn't, I didn't feel like everybody else around me looked. And I, I, right. I lived and worked in an army town, and so I've, all the guys I worked with were, were military. I'm prior service, and so it's a very, very drinking, toxic, masculine environment. So I didn't think that I was doing anything all that different from everybody else. I knew I drank more than most of the guys that I worked with, but I've always been the the extremist, the guy on the outside end. So I didn't think that that was it, but I felt like because I had all of these negative feelings on the inside that nobody else ever talked about, I thought there was something wrong with me. But it wasn't until I was 32 that I actually, through the help of a guy that I worked with, as a matter of fact, found my way into a recovery meeting. And that was the the big page turner for me. I, I found a room full of people who talked about the way they felt and that it was bad. They didn't like themselves. And he's, these are all the things they did to try to solve that. And it was the same list that I had of things that I'd tried to do. And that blew me away because up until that point, I thought that, that, that it was just me and that there was something wrong with me because I have all these feelings on the inside and all of the guys around me don't ever show any of that stuff. Well, that talks about that toxic masculinity. You know, don't share your feelings. You should be like this. You get that message. You bet. Yeah, I mean, from being a small kid, you know, the the day that you, you're running, you fall down, you scrape your knee, and your dad yells at you, don't, you know, big boys don't cry. And you, you learn to hold everything on the inside. And my dad didn't ever express anything other than rage his entire life. So I didn't have any understanding of what, half of these other feelings were, much less how to handle them, how to deal with them. So, you know, by the time I became an adult, you know, I'm 23, 25, 28 years old running around with no understanding of how to be who I am. And I'm trying to be someone else to to get some approval from, from people around me. And it's just, it's a disaster, especially, you know, when I'm 35 beers into a Saturday night, you know, there's, there's no way that I'm going to be a a normal functioning human being that that knows how to handle his feelings. So that was my biggest problem. I think that that made me decide I had to quit drinking was that the more I got drunk around other people, the more I misbehaved and just couldn't seem to control myself. And it was all of that stuff that I suppress all the time, you know, leaking out. I can't hold it together when I'm drunk. And a lot of the ways it came out was searching for affection. I needed affection so bad. I didn't know what to do with it. Right. So I would, pursue any woman in the vicinity, despite the fact that I was in a long-term relationship, I would try to try to find acceptance and, and affection and in, in everybody around me. And then the next day I would think about, oh God, I'm you know horrified at what I did last night. And the only thing that I could do to make that horrible feeling of, of guilt and, and just shame on the inside go away was to go home from work and, and get drunk again and make that go away. And it was just, it became a cycle. And I imagine that feeling had been there for a long time because you talk about a lot of the abuse that you suffered through your childhood, that that wasn't uh, necessarily a new feeling, that feeling of shame and that feeling of guilt, of worthlessness. No, that, that I think that has been there all my life. I can't think back to a time when I didn't feel that way about myself. So, 
it, it was just, it was the only way that I knew how to feel. It was the way that I, I knew myself to be. And had I known at any point in my life that I have the power to overcome that feeling and to change that feeling about myself, I think my life would have been drastically different. But I thought that I was just stuck with that, that that's who I was. Right. Almost like you don't even know it. In your book, you describe a therapy session that you begin to have where you start to uncover some of these deeper feelings, some of these deeper sensations at the time. Maybe you didn't recognize them as feelings, but you, you start to discover that. Can you, can you talk about that process a little bit? It was such a fascinating experience for me going into therapy. And uh, I did EMDR trauma therapy. And a lot of the point of that is to address childhood events and traumas and to change the way the emotions that we have tied to those memories. And so my therapist took me back to, you know, like the day standing in front of the wood pile and my dad standing there with the paddle and we're counting how many pieces of wood are sticking out that I'm going to get whipped for. And that that feeling of of just helpless rage that I had at that moment was, right, you know, right. kind of a defining it was a defining feeling, but I was too young to understand what was really going on in that situation. And so what, right, as an right. adult, with this perspective, I could look at that and say, you know, it's not the kid that had the shortcoming in the situation. It's not that that eight-year-old kid wasn't good enough to stack the wood properly. It's that his dad didn't have the tools to support that kid properly and to tell him you did a good job and maybe you could straighten those out and it would be even better. But it took the help of, of my therapist for me to look at that with, you know, the 30,000 foot view on it and to understand the feelings that I had in that situation and understand what was really going on there. And that helped me change my perspective on it from me being a failure to me being okay. Like I did all the things that I needed to do in that situation. And the shortcoming was on my dad. It wasn't on me. And that allows me to change my entire basis of self-belief because it's, it's right, that event right. times 10,000, right? So every one of those events that I thought I was the loser in that and I, I didn't do it good enough, it turns out I did just fine. And so that that's the life-altering experience for me is that everything that I thought I knew about myself to be true was not true. And I get to rewrite that story. And you get to feel differently about it. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it takes some time on that. Like, I've, I've been trained my entire life to feel a certain way about myself. So I still have the the automatic knee jerk reaction when, when I think about myself at various stages in my life or events or things that I did. But I have to, to remind myself in those moments that that's not true. That's not a, it's not a real feeling. And that I have new feelings about all of those things. And that's a that's a gift that, that I can never repay. It has changed. I don't even know how to put it into words, like my, my confidence, my understanding of who I am and what I have always brought to this world, it changed everything. Right. Being able to see it from that perspective. And I think so many of us can go through our life where we don't get that opportunity or we can't see it. It, it sounds like it almost started that first day you went into that recovery meeting and you saw these other men talk about feelings like, my gosh, they're feeling the same way I do. Maybe, maybe I'm not so alone in this. <laughs> that was the, the very first 
pinprick, I think, in my reality that, that eventually brought on the avalanche. But it, it took a lot of time then, too, because I had spent so much time reinforcing all of those negative self-beliefs. You know, I bought into it and I, I became part of the problem of, of just reinforcing all of the things that, that were horrible about me. And so understanding that there were other people that felt that way and that there was a, a way to get past that was a start. But it took years of, of hard work for me to get to various levels. Like it, it took me five years to be open minded enough to even think about seeing a therapist. And, right. you know, had I tried to do that on day one, I, I wouldn't have had any success with it because I had to overcome a lot of, I, I don't even know the word for it, but I just, I had so much prejudice against everything that, that was feel good and soft and fluffy and all of those things. I, I was trying to be a tough guy that I wasn't, right? And I tried to, tried to be Mr. Independent. <laughs> I don't need anybody's help or anything. Yeah, all that stuff is is uh, that toxic masculinity where you know mm -hmm. you're not allowed to have feelings. You're you're not supposed to express anything. You should just be stoic about it. And you know we buy into that idea that somehow we're flawed. And I and I and I, I would say maybe not buy into it because as children, in some ways, we don't necessarily understand that choice of buying into that belief. But mm -hmm. you know, I mean, things happen to us, and when we're in that age we start to take that on as an identity, especially those younger years. Sure. I mean, in your formative years, you, you take everything from around you and, and you believe that to be true, right? And right. in my case, you know, my dad instilled in me right from day one that he is right. No matter what, my dad is right. And and I can never question that. And the, the beliefs that I picked up from from just being raised in that environment, I didn't question many of those most of my adult life, like for little things from the way that my dad, my dad saw that when, when you eat a steak, it ought to be burned to a crisp. And that's how you eat a good steak. Uh, that was my belief. I, I burned all of my steaks all the way up until I was 35 years old. And then somebody finally talked me into having a medium rare steak and it blew my mind. It was amazing. It's like, oh my God, what, what else am I doing wrong? But you know, right. little things like that, all the way to to big things, you know, my my opinion about politics and and people who aren't like me and all of the big stuff, you know, all of those things I inherited from my parents and I never questioned them. And that's one of the things that changed for me once I got into recovery is I learned how to question those beliefs and change my mind about things and, and form my own opinions instead of just going with what was I was programmed with. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you've talked about how your dad had a ton of rage. That's all he could express. And so my question is about the title of your book, The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy. I, I want to hear about that, The Righteous Rage. I've gone through, you know, the the entire emotional arc, I think, in, in processing all this stuff and coming to terms with it. But in the beginning and up through the middle of, of identifying all the things that happened and why they happened, like I recognized that I got a raw deal and I have every reason in the world to be angry at my parents about that. Like I am justifiably hostile to my parents for what they did to me. But the, the closing end of that arc is that, yeah, I have, I have reason to be angry, but that anger doesn't do anything positive for me. All it does is keep me burning up on the inside. 
And right. the true freedom comes in, in moving past that and, and letting go of that rage, even if it's justified, even if, if I got a raw deal and I got screwed, none of that matters because I can, I can hold on to that until the day I die and I will have a miserable existence. But the true freedom comes in letting it go. And that arc, sometimes we want to jump to the end of the arc and just <laughs> walk to, you know, I'm just going to let it go. But I think sometimes that can end up being that kind of stoic masculinity. Well, I've let it all go. It's all fine, but it's really not. No, if you haven't processed the stuff, it's not fine. And I think that that is a very common thing that we want to go straight from from the beginning to the end and skip the middle. But like all things in life, the journey is where it's at. You know, it's not the destination. It's all about the journey. So you, if you skip the journey, you're just short, shorting yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And in your book, you're, you talk about, I, I think it's in chapter two, where you talk about that beginning process with the therapist of, let's dig a little bit deeper about that. It's scary in the beginning. I think for most of us, I don't want to speak for other people. For me, the idea of talking about all of my innermost fears to someone else, especially a stranger, especially a girl. Oh, my God. Like there, everything about that, you know, I was raised to believe was wrong. And so right. it was a big stepping out of the comfort zone to sit down with someone that's and even beyond that, somebody that's 15 years younger than I am and hasn't had all the life experiences that I've had and, you know, all of the things that I thought were prerequisites in order for her to help me, you know, she didn't have any of that stuff. She's, she's young, she's a girl, and she wants to talk about my feelings and, and the things that I have hidden from everybody, the stuff that's buried the deepest. And it's hard to get over that initial hump. But once I realized that putting it all on the outside didn't change anything in a negative way, like someone else knowing all of my, my fears and my secrets and all the horrible things that I've done, it didn't make me feel worse about myself. It made me feel better. Like getting sunshine on that stuff was so healthy, but getting willing to do that is a whole nother matter. And I think that for most of us, we just have the pain has to get greater than the fear. And, and right. that's how it was for me. You know, it hurt bad enough that I right. was willing to step into the fear. And I'm so grateful that I did. Right. And then finding that, uh, that support that works for you. Oh, yeah. Well, support is so important. And I think that's one thing that I, I give my wife a lot of credit for is backing me up no matter what I needed to do while I went through this process and being willing to listen. And she didn't understand three quarters of it. My wife had a great childhood. She has no concept of, of what it's like to grow up in a, in a terrible emotional environment. So, you know, she did her best to be supportive in every way that she could. And that gave me the freedom that I needed to go pursue this, but also being supported by my therapist and her helping me understand that it's okay to have the feelings. It's okay for me to feel the feelings that I don't need to do something to try to change those feelings, which has always been my MO. Right. Taking a, a, dr a drink to change the way I feel or smoking a cigarette to change the way I feel. I've, I've never been okay with feeling feelings. And I've given up all of those, those tools. And now I'm trying to learn how to feel the feelings and be okay with them. And sometimes it hurts, but I've learned that that's okay, too. It's, it's part of it. And what's so interesting, I, I find, is that a lot of times these other people around us, like you said, your wife and your therapist, 
can see the the good in us that we can't see in ourselves because we're so wrapped into that story of trauma, shame, abuse. Sure. I mean, when you think about our perspective on ourselves, and especially before I became you know, self-aware, learn how to become self-aware and to think about what I'm doing and the impact that it has on people around me. But, you know, my, my focus on myself was, was on three or four big glaring things. And I never paid attention to the other 99.999% of who I am and, and the experiences that I bring to those around me. And I think that it's, it's important to, to try to get past that and, and to grow that self-awareness and and understand that other people don't have the same experience with us that we have with ourselves. They have what we put on the outside. We have what's on the inside. Yeah. What motivated you to put pen to paper, to put this book out there, to now put it actually out in print? I had a couple of reasons. The first was that while my childhood traumas are unique to me in some way, the insecurities and self-beliefs that I formed as a result of those experiences are the same that everybody else has. And the process that I went through to overcome that and change the way that I feel about myself is the same for everybody. And to me, that was so profound. I mean, for me to be able to go from a negative life experience to a positive life experience and to go from self-loathing to self-love, like I need to share that. It's my responsibility to share that with as many people as possible because that's that's information that people need to have. I didn't know that stuff most of my life. And if I can help someone else realize that and change their experience, then, then that gives me some fulfillment. But it, it all yeah. started just as a journal because I was I was having so many breakthroughs and and my realizations were just coming at me left and right that I was afraid of forgetting some of that stuff. And so I started journaling it out. And by the time we were six, eight months into it, that's when I realized that that this is a book and this is something that people need to have. Right. That other people can relate to this and, and see this. I can share my story. And that toxic shame, that toxic masculinity, maybe free someone else from that. Yeah, definitely. And I will tell you, it's it's a step past. You know, I talked about the the challenge of sharing my secrets with my therapist. And when when I get on on podcast interviews and talk about this stuff, and when people that I don't even know are reading my book, and I've put all my deepest, darkest secrets in there too. The more sunshine gets on those secrets, the less power they have over me. And that's a that's an incredible feeling, too. Like, you, you can't come at me with anything. I, I don't have anything to be afraid of because I've already put it all out on the line. So there's nothing anybody else can throw at me. That's a pretty freeing thing in itself. Yeah, it's it's freeing from that shame. And, and you know, shame is I don't want to be seen. I can't be seen. I mm-hmm. don't don't look at me. And when it's all out there, there is like a huge amount of, of freedom to just be yourself and and just be who you are. That's right. And with the confidence that some people are going to love me for who I am and some people are going to not love me for who I am. And it's okay either way. Like I, that right. is such a, a change of, of attitude for me. You know, as a, as a people pleaser, you know, my opinion of myself was so reliant on other people's opinions that I couldn't imagine taking that kind of a risk before I've I've managed to learn all this stuff. But now I don't have to worry about any of that because my opinion comes from, from inside. Right. That it's from you. And how has that impacted the rest of your life? I mean, you're also a business owner, an entrepreneur. 
and, and all of that. How, how has this changed all that? In every way imaginable. But the, the biggest part is I have self-confidence. And so that changes the way I carry myself, the way that I address people, the way that I handle challenges at work, whether it's with a, a customer or an employee. Like there, one of the chapters in the book addresses my inability to fire an employee. And, you know, I, I had a, an anxiety attack in, in the middle of that effort trying to let somebody go that needed to be let go. I couldn't do it. I had to, I had to tap out and let my wife handle it. And it's only been maybe three weeks ago now, I, I, I fired somebody for the first time and I did it by myself and, and I handled it and I walked through it. And that all by itself is, is such a huge change in my ability to, to do my job and to, to, you know, fulfill the responsibilities that I have to protect my company. And right. You know, the positive things that come along with that too, is my, my abilities as a leader to, to take the team through whatever situation we're facing. You know, I'm, I have the confidence that, that we're going to be able to get through this no matter what, and that there's nothing that can happen that's going to destroy me. I'm going to be okay with that. And that, that allows me to have a positive attitude that other people feed from. You know, people take their, their direction. If you have a negative leader, you're probably going to be a negative company. And so that has allowed me to be positive and confident, which has changed the, the, the whole culture of the workplace. And that's a big deal. But my relationship with my wife has improved, too, because I don't have to prove myself over and over because I have this inferiority complex, whereas, you know, I used to have to prove myself or I felt like I had to prove myself every day. So not going right, through all that right. is, 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 you know, frees up a lot of energy and a lot of time. And everybody has been around somebody who's constantly trying to prove themselves like that's an annoying person. That's an exhausting person to be around. And I am grateful that I don't have those behaviors anymore. Yeah. And, and you had talked earlier about some of the subtle things like these changes of like being able to fire an employee or some of these other small things, just like the little things that you pick up in your relationship are different. But they're big victories when you can see them in the context of all of your own trauma. The more pieces of my puzzle I get on the board, I, it's just... It's really fascinating. I, like, I can almost look at it from an outside perspective of seeing all of the, the various puzzle pieces and the, the, the progression of the past from going from a, a broken little boy into a broken man and into a, a healed man that's, that's, that's whole and, and emotionally healthy, or at least getting there. It has become a lifestyle for me. I find it very interesting to, to learn about myself and to figure out things that I, I want to change about myself and how I might go about doing that. But the positive impacts that it has on everyone else around me, too, you know, the, the enthusiasm that, that people bring into a conversation with me, like I just it gives my whole life more meaning and fulfillment. And I just I don't know. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing way to live. Absolutely. Once you get past the, the fear of self-discovery, I mean, if you think about it, when we're in that trauma and that shame, we've been trying to hide that from everyone and hide it from ourselves and to be able to walk into it when you have enough security in yourself. Yeah. You get to really learn about yourself and know who you are and it's not as scary anymore. Right. You know, I remember, I think about this at least once a month. I remember sitting in the bathroom, probably, you know, when I was 27, 28 years old, sitting in the back bathroom pounding down a six pack of beer because somebody showed up at the house unexpectedly and I was sober and I could not possibly face somebody outside of work 
you know, if, if I haven't got a little bit of beer to lubricate things. And just right. that that feeling on the inside, that anxiety of, of just like everything is wrong, right? And I don't want to lose that feeling because that that drove so much of my behavior, so much of my life. And I want to remember that as a measuring point on how far I've come. Because that that hiding from everybody all the time, like sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, but it's it's exhausting. Like it's such a, a difficult lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And it's so freeing to walk through that. But it's work and it's it's scary. Definitely. It's definitely a lot of work. You know, as you can tell reading through the book, you know, it's it's an hour of, of a therapy session just figuring the stuff out, but then it's going home and stewing on it for a week or two and, and figuring stuff yep. out and writing some things for me. In my case, I learn a lot about myself just writing things down because it allows my, my thoughts to expand. And then yeah, you're going back and doing the next session and then stewing on that for a couple of weeks. So it's it, it wasn't an overnight change for me. It, it's been, you know, several years in the making. But like I said earlier, you know, the journey of going through all of this, I think, is where the joy is at. If if a switch got flipped and one day I went from miserable, the next day everything was amazing, I wouldn't have any way to appreciate why or how it happened or, or what it took for that to happen. So I, I think the slow, gradual process for me is is, is satisfying in itself. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think when you find that joy and, and that some of that serenity and some of that healing, it, there is just this natural tendency to want to give it to others who are suffering. There is. And I think that's something that I picked up early in, in recovery programs is that when you can witness someone else having a small triumph, like you get to take a part in that because when you understand the struggle, you recognize how important the triumph is, even if it's it's minute. So being able to go through your own process, knowing that other people understand you and that you understand where they are. That's, that's one of the basic human needs is to be understood. Right. And yep. I think once you learn the elements of, of who you are and what makes you do what you do, then you have that understanding and that, that enables you to have empathy for yourself as well as for other people. Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, there's so many people out there that can, help you in that journey can help any anybody who's struggling in that journey that want to listen want to understand yeah yeah i think that's one of the things that makes recovery groups so successful is is that it's it's a group of people who are on the same journey and have have experienced the same pain and it's hard to find that in many other places in society and i think that you know we would benefit as a whole if people could be more open about their challenges rather than trying to keep the 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 good face on all the time yeah that facade of like i'm okay everything's fine i got it all under control it's all good <laughs> don't yeah. don't look at me don't look too close <laughs> yeah because there are those of us out there that are naive enough to believe that when we compare our insides to other people's outsides you know we lose every time so i think it's it's really important to know that no matter how bad you're struggling, you're certainly not alone. And when, when you're seeing other people that seem like they've got it all together, you just don't know them very well. You haven't spent enough time with them because we all have challenges to some level. Absolutely. Justin, I, I want to just say, like, I'm glad you chose to put your whole self out there so that other people could could see it and learn and grow. I think that's a that's an amazing and wonderful thing. 
we're coming up on our time, but before I wrap up, I usually like to ask like one question and that's like, if anybody's out there listening and you could say one thing, what would you want it to be? Be willing to change your mind about everything that you believe because you could be wrong. Oh, awesome. Awesome. How can people find you? You can find everything you need to know about me at my website at jboydlong.com. I've got all my books on there. I've got a blog with a lot of self-help discussions and, and things that I've learned about myself in there. It's a lot of good stuff. So jboydlong.com. Oh, thank you, Justin, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I appreciate you sharing your story and just being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check that out. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please write us a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast. And I really appreciate it. Also, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. You can continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the Addicted Mind. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.